Welcome back to QAV. This is episode 533. We're recording this Wednesday, the 24th of August, 9.03 a.m. on the east coast of Australia, probably late in the afternoon in L.A. And I mention that because our guest, well, uh, to welcome back on the show, his first time back since July 2020 when we're all going, oh, my God, we're all going to die, is Tobias Carlyle from Acquirers Funds, author of two of the the best books on value investing, The Acquirer's Multiple and Deep Value, co-host of The Acquirer's Podcast. That's when you know you've really made it when you've got your own podcast. (laughs) Chosen as Value Investing Monthly Magazine's Sexiest Value Investor 2022. (laughs) I just made that up, but if it's not a thing, it should be. Who came second, Warren or Charlie? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, see, there's not a lot of competition. I think he's got it it locked down. I'd be one of the young ones. (laughs) (laughs) Roger Montgomery's a good-looking dude. It'll be between him and Roger Montgomery, I think. Uh, He's a good-looking fella. Yeah. Welcome back to the show, Tobias Carlyle. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. Mate, uh, how's it been for you the last couple of years? Last time we spoke to you, as I said, July 2020, we were in peak COVID lockdown. You know, in Brisbane, it was pretty cruisy. We went through the next couple of years with hardly any cases, hardly any lockdowns. Sydney was a little bit harder. Melbourne had a really tough, as I'm sure you heard. They were in lockdown pretty much for a year. I was in LA just recently, and people were still walking around wearing masks everywhere. It was a bit of a culture shock to me to go from Australia where we haven't had really masks for a long time or lockdowns, or whatever, to CLA. And I know the, the governor there or somebody was talking about, oh, we might have to go back into lockdown. This is about a month ago I left. What's life been like for you? But we'll get into investing. But how's the last couple of years been for you, COVID-wise, business-wise, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mostly ignore COVID and I don't wear a mask or anything like that. So I got the whole family caught it really early on. And uh, I haven't worried about it since. Right. So um, it's been a non-event for me too. I always find it a little bit odd sometimes when I go out and I see people in their masks. So I always forget that that's going on. Other than that, you know, business is good. I would like value to get its bid, but I'm guessing we're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, but aside from that, you know, I, I can't complain. <laughs> How's the podcast going? You guys always seem to be having a lot of fun on that. It's a good fun show. Yeah, it's really fun. It's, you know, the idea is that it's supposed to be the way that we would talk to each other in a bar after a conference. Like that was the idea, value after hours. So it's supposed to be pretty loose and it's supposed to be kind of what what we would talk about. It ends up being a little bit more structured than that, but that's the idea. Basically, we just bring something that we've seen and that we want to talk about. It's very easy to do. And I, I like talking to those two guys. And uh, what's going on in the world of value for you? Finding anything under the rocks when you're turning them over? So my, my universe, so I've got two funds. I've got Zig, the Acquirers Fund, which is mid-cap and large-cap domestic US equities. And I have another fund, Deep, Round Hill Acquirers Deep Value Fund, which is a small and micro fund. And that's also domestic US. In both of those funds, the holdings, I think, are naturally, I think that they're deeply undervalued. But I think that anytime there's sort of any external analysis of those funds, they always score very highly on a few fronts. They score very highly on, on the value ratios, which you'd expect. That, I mean, they're, they're cheap on a value ratio. They also score quite well on a return on capital basis, which you probably wouldn't expect. But I think that we're in this unusual part, this unusual time in the market. And the same thing happened in 2000 as well, where the value 
portfolios are higher quality than the expensive portfolios. And the driver of that is that we've had a lot of incredibly expensive sort of profitless tech making up the most expensive stuff. And that has come back, but I don't think people appreciate that you know, if you have profitless tech and it comes back 90%, it can still be expensive down 90%. And that's, that's what I think. That's the case. In 2000, we had profitless tech go, then, then sort of more profitable tech went second and the rest of the market went third. I think we saw that this time as well. We're in this funny space now where if I had to bet on it, and I am, I would say that this is a little bear market bounce and we probably haven't seen the full extent of the selling yet and that's that's coming i don't think that's a very popular point of view but i I think it's that's where the data leave me what do you think tk it's um probably have a different perspective i don't really look at the cycles in the market other than i agree with you the the last two years has felt like 1999 and 2000 again and that growth was just ridiculously being bought with a fomo mentality without trying to value the companies at all and we had growth investors on the podcast and ask them what their metrics were and how do they value your company? And it was like, valuation? Huh, don't worry about it. That's if what's been holding st- you back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you buy a stock and you get the valuation wrong, it'll only go up two times, not three times. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, right. I've found in my experiences, I still find good companies in all sorts of markets and they regress to the mean. And it's, it's the fact that a lot of the market divides itself into these boxes like, tech and growth and value that gives you the opportunities to buy things that are out of favor and wait until they become in favor. There's a lot of macro stuff going on in the world at the moment. You know, China's still cutting interest rates. There's property problems over there. There's the Ukraine war, which I thought would be wrapped up within a month, is still going on. There's gas shortages in, in Europe. Inflation I saw yesterday at, is predicted to go to 19% in the UK. So well, there's still a lot that can go wrong, which could be the start of a bear market. But again, who knows? And who knows what the secondary effects of all those things are? So I kind of, I personally ignore the macro. What about you, Tobias? Do you pay attention to macro and, and in how you invest? It doesn't enter into my investment process at all, but I do pay attention to it just because it's, it's fun. Like, mm. you know what they say, it's like, uh, it's astrology for men. looking at at that stuff that's that's basically the way i feel about it it doesn't it's not so much that like it's just unpredictable and you can't Mm. as you say you can be right about what the event and you might be completely wrong about how the market reacts to that event because everybody thought that was what was going to happen and that was what they were preparing for and i've seen that plenty of times in companies so I, i do some merger arbitrage sometimes and it's that uncertainty that is what creates the discount and in that uncertainty, you have the best case outcome and the worst case outcome. And sometimes or often, the worst case outcome mm-hmm. is what actually manifests. That's what happens. And you still get a rally on that because the market prefers the worst case outcome yeah. to the uncertainty. And so I, as you are agnostic to it, but I just try to keep my, I use it as a, um, just to temper my own expectations about what the portfolio will do. Because if we, all, if we go into a big drawdown, then it's inevitable that the portfolio follows. So I never let myself right. get too excited about the future. I'm always assuming the worst and hoping that we can survive it or positioning to survive it. Well, well how do you position then if, you think, if you're hoping for the worst? Do you, do you go to cash? Do you holding cash or are you fully invested? No, that's, that's the obvious question. No, I don't do that. 
I assume in every every position I put on that the worst case scenario will manifest after I put it on. And so I want a company that can survive through a, its worst case scenario. And I, we were talking about this this morning when I recorded the podcast this morning. It used to be very simple to go back and look 10 years back and you'd always have a recession or a depression to give you an idea how a company performed through that period of time. Now it's been so long in the States in any case that and in Australia, I think it's even longer, mm. right? You, you can't find out what happened. I remember doing some analysis on the Australian banks. This is quite a long time ago now. This is probably in 2010 and running the banks back and trying to find a recession and going through CompuStat data. And I had to go back to like 1993 or something like that. 1992 was the last recession in Australia, yeah. That's crazy. That's amazing. So we've solved that. We've solved the business cycle. Well, Well, China solved it for us, I think. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's certainly the Reserve Bank thinks they've solved the the business cycle and they just print money when when things look tough. But uh, I mean, that chicken's going to come home to roost like, I have a feeling, so I'm not sure. How does it come home to roost? What, what do you think happens? Well, if you've got lots of debt still sitting there, it's got to get paid off at some stage or written off, so it's going to be a hit either way. So Or inflated away. Or inf- inflated away, yep. But you know, seems to be their preference. Yeah, but like in- inflation in Australia is high-ish, but not, not enough to inflate away debt quickly. <laughs> it's got to get way up there before that, that's going to happen. And that's a bad thing for the economy anyway, so yeah. Sorry, explain that to a dummy like me. How do you inflate away the debt? How does that work? There's a generally a drift. The, we're generally printing money over time. There's generally more money outstanding. Any asset or debt is denominated in that token that you're printing more of all the time. The purchasing power of that to- token goes down. The value of that asset denominated in that token goes up, even though on a purchasing power basis, it might be static. And the value of that debt on a purchasing power basis goes down. So the debt figure, you might just be paying back the interest and leaving the principal there. But you know what would have seemed like an extraordinarily large amount of money 50 years ago or 30 years ago is a very modest sum of money these days. Like a, to be a millionaire used to be you know, yeah. something really impressive. And now that means you've paid off your house or something like that. You know? And that's, that's probably the best example is, that people might relate to is if you take out a mortgage of 500 grand in 20 or 30 years time, it's going to be so insignificant, you're not even going to worry about it because the house value has gone up and the currency is inflated. So $500,000 is worth probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the future. The same thing with government debt, right? Over time, what might be in the billions now won't seem that bad in 20, 30 years time because inflation has just inflated money past it. Okay. Thanks. It also assumes that you don't keep borrowing at the same rate. And that's, you mm. know, that's the other side that's of things. The problem. <laughs> if, if governments have gotten used to winning elections because they make lots of promises and then borrow the, to pay them, that's mm. not going to stop quickly. Mm. Someone's mm. got a great line like that where they say the, uh, an election is like an auction on future spending or something like that. I forget who said that. It's probably like one of the Austrian economists. Well, it's become a real business plan in Australia. You see the governments here will stop spending in the last two years of their term so they can save it up to promise it ah, as one big, one big hit at, at election time. Yeah. Clever. Yeah. So, so, um, so, you, so you, you grew up in Australia, so you would have paid attention to the Australian market, but your funds are US-based. Can you tell me what the difference between the Australian market and the US market is? I know you have quarterly reporting over there. We have six monthly. If I was looking at a balance sheet for an Australian company, 
do I have to translate it to US speak or is it essentially the same thing as operating cash flow in Australia, the same thing as operating cash flow in the States, for example? They are mostly equivalent. They're largely equivalent. It's just it's a slightly different language because GAAP is US GAAP and Australia is Australian IFRS, that international financial reporting standards. And so every country that's not the US or Canada has IFRS and they have their own local implementation of IFRS. I used to know it much, much better than I do now because I've, I've got lazy because I don't really look outside the US much. I'm mostly focusing on GAAP and all of my systems are built for GAAP. Aside from the reporting, though, there are some significant structural differences between the markets. One of them is that they have market makers here. So I don't really understand the function of the market makers. I think they're unnecessary because we don't have them in Australia and the Australian markets function perfectly fine. The other big difference is the sector composition. So Australia is heavily financials, it's half financials, which is mostly the big banks. And then it's 15% basic materials, something like that. And then everything else is squashed into that remainder. And so there's very little tech. Whereas if you look at the MSCI world, which is the world index, tech tends to be about 11 sectors. Mm -hmm. And then the US has a, a heavier weighting towards tech. I forget now, it might've been a little bit sort of overblown by the, the bubble that we went through over the last two years. But I would guess that it's settled somewhere. It's around 13 or 14 or 15%, something like that. Mm. And that's a big difference between the US and really the rest of the world, but it does have these big consumer discretionary businesses that, you know, like a Google or an Apple that don't really exist in other countries. So it would be very easy to construct a portfolio here if you were trying to keep your sector weightings reasonably equal. Whereas it's quite hard to do that in Australia because there's just the, the Australian market's like the Canadian market. It's more heavily very focused so. on financials and, 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 and resources, uh, basic yeah. materials. Yeah. yeah. No, very much so. What about the size of the US market? I mean, I kind of feel having invested for a long time in Australia, I, I very rarely come across a company I don't know much about because I've just, it's, it's been a reasonably static market with 2000 stocks for a long time. Are you drinking from a fire hydrant in the US and it, it's, you just focus on one sector or do you focus broadly? Yeah, I, I focus across everything because you, you have that advantage that if one sector, because just just sectors and industries tend to get cheap, all of the companies in the sector, se sector or the industry tend to get cheap at the same time or expensive at the same time because there's a mania going on or there's some sort of localized depression or something like that. So it's good to be able to go across boundaries and do that because the, my two funds are sort of slightly different universes, but they are, I'm trying to express the same strategy in, in those two different universes, although it's reasonably easy to, to research them and they are sort of all comparable to something else. But that's a, yeah, you're right. I remember being in Australia, the guy that I used to work for in Australia, he could just sit there with the announcement scrolling down the screen and he would know, he was looking for capital returns and things like that. He would know the company and he could react to it very quickly. Whereas you would just be, you couldn't open up the, the announcements. There'd just be too many. You, could, you just couldn't stay over the top of them. So you need to do a different type of screening where you're screening on criteria for valuation or for quality or something like that, balance sheet strength, all of those sort of things. Which is what you do with the acquirers model. It's a similar sort of process to what we do, which is to download the data and then look for ratios and look for quality and value. How did you come across that? Was that something that evolved out of what you were doing? Or So I, when I was at UQ, I used to go to the social sciences library and I'd go and this was pre all of this stuff being in online databases and 
we were doing like CD-ROMs, but these journals weren't on CD-ROMs. I just used to go and grab the, you know, they had like the Financial Analyst Journal and various other journals, and I would just go through the index, literally just running my finger down the index and see if they had anything that mentioned value. And I found one. There was a guy who was, he's a Harvard legal and economics guy. He's Michael C. Jensen is his name. And I found he did a whole lot of research in the 80s on takeovers in the 80s. And what he found was that, you know, it's academic. The academics identify these things and, and say them in, in ways that we all, everybody already knows this to be the case, but they kind of formalize it a little bit. And he just said, when you find these companies that have enormous amounts of free cash flow, it does seem to be those are the ones that are targeted by the leveraged buyout companies because they can redirect that cash flow. And then he came up with all of these reasons why that was a good thing because it would sort of tie management's hands. They couldn't expand. They were compelled to kind of return capital and redirect those cash flows into ways that really benefited the shareholders who remained. Because, you know, to get out of the way of a lot of the the leveraged buyout guys, a lot of these companies did the dividend, did the, the leverage recap where they would just pay out a big dividend and then they they do the on-market leverage buyout. And so I read a lot of his stuff and I read a lot of these things. And one of these articles that I read or one of these journals that I read, they described, they said, think about it was EBITDA to enterprise value as being the acquirer's multiple. And so it just stuck in my mind. And that was, that was, the, that was the late 1990s. And that was when dot-coms were very popular. And I thought, this stuff is all like, this is old stuff from the 80s. This will never, <laughs> we'll, ne- we'll never see this again. And then straight away, <laughs> After 2002, it became a private equity buyout activist market again. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So that this, these things do seem to go in cycles. You have a tech mania and then you have a financial market and then you probably go back into a tech mania. And funnily enough, that seems to have been what has happened, although we've come to the end of the tech mania. Maybe the next thing is a financial mania. But I just had that idea. And then when I moved to the States, I did some research with a guy who was at the Booth School of Business, which is the old Chicago School of Business. And we went and found every bit, every bit of industry and academic research that we could find on fundamental analysis and tested all of this stuff in a model that he had built. And the idea was we were going to track down, there were these old ratios that were invented in the 30s to look at manufacturing companies to work out whether they could stay solvent, whether mm. they were credit worthy. And the question was, do these apply to things that aren't manufacturing companies? Do these things continue to apply to this day? Because they all have these really complicated formulas and they'd have these little coefficients for each of the, you know, so they'd say days, days payable outstanding and that'd be a 0.27. Now, why is that a 0.27? I have no idea. But when they'd done the linear regression by hand, like least squares method by hand in the 30s, they'd found that this was the best fit through the data. And so the question was, does this stuff continue to work or has this stuff stopped working or did it never work? And it was just purely an accident of like looking through this data. So we tested it and we found what had worked, what didn't work, what could be made to work again if we just made a little adjustment to it. So a lot of people will know Pierre Trotsky's F-score. That's a way of looking at, he looks at companies that are cheap on a price to book value basis. And then he goes through and basically is just looking for, are they solvent? Do they have too much debt? Do they have, you know, all of this, are the ratios changing in a bad way? Are they changing in a good way? And he gives them scores. And if they score enough points out of nine, then they're good. And if they don't score enough points out of nine, then they're bad. And we found that you could just adjust that a little bit to make it one of the things that he looked at was share issuance or shares bought back. And there's, since he did that research, there's been a much better share-based compensation has become a much bigger part of the market. So 
we changed it to net shares sort of issued rather than or net shares bought back rather than the net shares issued. So we did all those changes and then we put that all together into a single model. And we wrote about that in a book called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. And so that really was the basis for the way that I think about the market. And one of the, one of the things that we found when we compared all of the value ratios, so we looked at price to book, we looked at all the flow metrics, earnings, cash flow, operating cash flow, free cash flow. We looked at accounting metrics like EBIT or EBITDA and so on. And we tested them all and we found that the EBIT and EBITDA were basically, you couldn't separate them relative to scale to enterprise value, which if, if people don't know what enterprise value is, that's so market capitalization is, is the share price multiplied by the number of shares that are outstanding. And then enterprise value adds in the debt that the company holds and other things that are like debt, so preference shares. It looks to see if they've got any minority interests that mean that they don't have all of the economic value accruing to them. And uh, anything that's quasi-debt adds it all together. So it's like, to give the house example that we had before, the purchase price for your house might be a million dollars and you might borrow $800,000 and put down $200,000 as your deposit. So the market capitalization of that house is $200,000, but it misses the fact that you've got this mortgage sitting there for $800,000. And so enterprise value is 1 million, market capitalization is 200,000. So that's what we're, we're trying. And, and you might get lucky and find there's this safe buried in the backyard. And when you open up the <laughs> safe, there's $500,000 in the safe. So you have to adjust for that. And that's basically what the enterprise value does. When you scale enterprise value to EBITDA, because that's like an operating earnings any operating earnings figure like that, so operating cash flow, EBITDA, operating income, they all give you roughly the same answer. And that's just basically comparing what you're paying, which is the enterprise value, that's the real cost, versus what you're getting, which is the, that's, this is the accounting measure of cash flow, basically, EBITDA, EBITDA. We found that that one performed best in the, in the, in the study that we did through to 2011. Yeah, well, so you use that to invest for yourself first or to, were you running people's money from, the, from day one or what happened there? No, I, I used it then to find, this was, so I had been using it before then. I had been, because I had, I was aware, I just liked the metric. I liked the, the intuition of the metric because I had read about it in that book and I liked that sort of 80s style of analysis where you were looking for things that could get bought out. And so I was, I was finding, in the US in particular, you find that there are lots of these little companies that I think there are fewer now, which is which I think is caused by Sarbanes-Oxley. But at that time, there were lots of these companies around. And there was these guys at this bank, Piper Jaffrey had this, they did this research and they found that there were countless numbers of these companies that were too small to be in any good index. So they might not even be in the Russell 2000, or which is the smallest 2000 of the biggest 3000. And I think that there are about there are four or 5,000 listed stocks in the States on these indexes. And so these companies were basically orphaned. They weren't in any of the indexes and they were all very cheap and they were all, otherwise they meet all of the criteria that we would look for. They're growing pretty quickly. They've got a good, lot of cash generation, pretty clean balance sheet, basically run by the founding family. And these guys said there's this preference in the market for bigger, better, growthier companies and these things will never get taken out. And they called them, initially, they called them endangered species. And then they started publishing this report, which they called the endangered Darwin's darlings, because they were all companies that weren't going to survive. That was, I think that was what created all the dry tinder for the activism that exploded in the early 2000s. 
because it was a very simple matter to come in and find these things trade. They'd be trading it two or three times enterprise, so EBITDA to enterprise value, which basically means that they pay themselves off. You buy them, they pay, they get enough money back in a, in a few years to justify the purchase price. And then these are run by families. So they're pretty, they're not going to do anything too silly. They don't sell at silly prices. Although one thing that they do do is that they would team up with private equity and get taken out at a price that that I was always a little bit miffed about because it was way, way cheaper than I would have ever sold these things. But you know, you buy them at two or three times, they get taken out at five times. It's not such a it's not a huge loss. It's a good, it's a good return, but it's not as good as it could have been. So that they've gone away a little bit because the market has just trended towards bigger companies and companies have tended to come public later and bigger. Whereas previously they would have listed and grown. Now they wait until they're going to hit the big indexes because they don't want to be orphaned. That was the strategy. And then after I got reasonably comfortable with doing that, that was when I started managing outside money. And so you have two funds now, and I think one of them is an ETF, or are they both ETFs? They're both ETFs, yeah. They're both ETFs. Why did you choose ETFs? And in Australia, an ETF normally means low fees. Is that the case with your funds? Yeah, so they're, they're lower fee than you would get in a mutual fund or in a limited partnership, which would be a hedge fund over here. The huge advantage of an ETF is unlike a mutual fund or a limited partnership or even a managed account, is the decisions that I make as the portfolio manager to buy or sell don't create taxable events for the people who hold the ETF. So it's not like if you have a unit trust in Australia, which is the way that a lot of the funds are set up, when they buy something and they sell it and they have a capital gain, that capital gain then flows through to you as the ultimate holder mm-hmm. of the unit trust. That's not what happens with an ETF because they have this create redeem function where basically it's a little bit like getting script for script rollover in a takeover. Now, if you get taken over and they offer script, you take script, then you don't have a, you're able to roll over your capital gains tax for until you eventually sell the share yourself. So that is basically how it works in the back end of the ETF, which is incredibly powerful. If you, one of the things that you find after you've been investing for a little bit of time is that the tax drag on successful investments is massive. And the difference between short-term capital gains and long-term capital gains is so huge. If you then compare them on a like-for-like basis, you if you get 15% and you never sell and you just allow something to compound, that's worth about 40% in short-term capital gains If someone, because that's basically your marginal rate. The effort to produce the after-tax return, after-fee, after-tax return is so much lower in an ETF than it is in any of these other structures. That's the main attraction because most people are. Most people who've been investing for a while become pretty sensitive to taxes, I've found, and I certainly got that way. So it's, it's an incredibly tax-efficient strategy. Is the operation of an ETF the same as if it was a listed fund? I know, for example, if it's an ETF that tracks an index, there's something called a market maker sitting underneath. So if someone joins the ETF and they need to get some to buy some more shares, there's somebody working, spinning the wheels underneath to do that. Is that the same with your fund? That's right. It doesn't matter whether it's a pat so that the names for them are a little bit misleading because you know that there's this idea that there's passive and that there's mm. active. So a passive fund tracks an index and the index can be have a huge active share. So active share is just the deviation from whatever broad-based index you have. So the S&P 500 
is a market capitalization weighted float adjusted index of 500 names in the States. And anything that deviates that because it's got a value tilt or it's smaller has a big active share. But it could be an index product with an active share. So the way that I have structured deep as an index for historical reasons, because I took it over from somebody else, it had been, it had been operating for a while and it was an index fund. Zig is an active fund, which means that I trade the shares, but it did start out as an index fund. And they made a change to the capital gains tax over here, where previously it had to be an index fund to get that capital gains tax treatment. When they changed that, it's just a way for me to chop out a bit of costs out of the business. And I'm a value guy, so I chop any cost out that I can. So I got rid of the index and now I manage it actively. But there's no difference to the way that it was managed before other than there's no practical difference for the holder of a, of a unit in, in Zig. The market maker function is independent of whether it's an index or whether it's an active. Every ETF has that market maker function. And that is, so if you invest in the ETF, the ETF might never trade, but if you invest, it's always as liquid as the underlying security. So if, if the fund holds very large S&P 500 companies, it's as liquid as those underlying companies. If the underlying is a bond that doesn't trade very often, then it will be very illiquid, even if the unit's changing hands pretty regularly. So that is something that you should watch out for. But the holdings in my funds are, are very liquid. It's, there's lots of liquidity there. And the, the market maker stands there. So if there's nobody selling, the market maker will make the sale. And that's how money actually ends up flowing into the fund. They have inventory and they wait until they get a little bit short, the units of the fund. And then they do a create. And the way that a create works is somebody, these high-frequency traders typically, they create the portfolio, they recreate it in the market, and then they exchange it for units in the fund. So the fund grows by accumulating additional holdings. The clever thing is that you can do this in a custom way. So if I want to sell something out, I can use that create redeem function to sell it out and I can exchange it for units or I can exchange it for other other companies in the, in the market that I want to buy at the same time. So it's a really, it's a great vehicle for investment because it's very, very liquid for, if you decide tomorrow that I haven't done a very good job and you want to sell it out, you can, you can liquidate your holdings immediately on the market, never have to speak to me again. And if you want to buy it, anybody can do it out of a, out of a brokerage account. So you said one of the funds was an, a value index fund. So we don't really have that in Australia, but when we've looked at, I think they do publish indexes for value. But when we looked into it, they were basically just taking the top 10 lowest PE ratioed stocks within an index, top 200 or whatever it was here. Is that the kind of simple methodology for a value index fund in the States as well? So there are, I construct the index. So I can, all that means is that I put together a portfolio on a quarterly basis and I send that to my index maker which is a German firm by the name of Selective, they then publish the index and then the, the traders, the trade desk for the fund have to match that index. So it rebalances on a quarterly basis. But the way that the index is constructed, that has been the problem with value indexes and continues to be the problem with value indexes in the States. So the bigger, older indexes, which are like the Russell 2000 value or S&P 500 value, there are lots of these. Every index now has various sub-indexes that are broken into value or growth or 
ESG or whatever the case may be. The value indexes haven't been great because they use price to book as their value metric. And they do other silly things too, but they're not particularly value related. They might look at the number of employees. It makes no sense at all. I've looked at a few of the methodology documents and they just, I don't know what they were trying to achieve when they put it together. And then the performance is, as you'd expect, pretty terrible mm. from those because price to book hasn't been a particularly good metric. I don't know that price to book was ever a particularly good metric, mm. but it's certainly, <laughs> it's now deviated so far from the way that financial statements are constructed that it just, it's not a particularly useful um, metric. The only saving grace that it had is that value has done so badly over the last few years. Price to book did le- least badly of all of the sort of value metrics because it was not tracking va- value very well. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. Like I, I've considered myself a value investor for a long time and I get puzzled when I hear market commentators talk about value doing well or value doing poorly compared to growth. And I'm like thinking, well, I've just been investing and it's, it's been going fine. So I don't, I don't get that value versus growth. But there is a kind of pigeonholing going on there, as you say, when they try and construct an index for it. And that's what they're really talking about, isn't it? Well, there's also, there's this idea of value as a philosophy and value as sort of an, you know, the value factor is what the academics call price to book. And so that has sort of seeped out into the, the investment community where they call value is the extent to which it tracks the value factor. And you can do these analyses and see. And so my holdings, because my holdings tend to be, you know, the, the start of my process is the acquirer's multiple. I tend to not score very well on, on a price to book basis because the book value is sort of irrelevant to the process. I'm not looking at book value at all. It's a flow metric. And you can find that there are lots of businesses and lots of examples of that. So McDonald's is a good example. McDonald's has been such a, it's so good at returning capital to shareholders that now has a negative book value. So when you try to do a book value analysis on it, you get a, this, you get a nonsense answer. But it's not a difficult process to do a valuation on McDonald's because it's a pretty simple business and it's mm. pretty steady. But it just fails the price to book that traditional sort of analysis. So flow metrics have always been my preference. The only thing to say though is that flow metrics are are volatile. So earnings are more volatile than book value. That's the Mm -hmm. only saving grace for the the book value argument. That's what we find too is I can turn over my portfolio twice a year because the the, the flow metrics change every time they report from six months to six months. So something that was cheap can have a new set of numbers and it was, it's not cheap going forward. We're talking about value as a philosophy here. And so value as a philosophy, you're not looking at a single report at a static number and then calculating a ratio from that. Probably what you're doing is looking at a series of reports, trying to find a rough estimate for a growth rate of earnings or a return on invested capital over time and then looking subsequently to see if, if it can continue to generate these kind of returns into the future. What's that worth? What's my opportunity cost when I look at other things? So I could look at over here, I would look at the 10-year would be, I think that's a reasonable proxy for the, to match the duration of these businesses. This is the problem though. The 10-year has been so crushed that everything looks cheap relative to the 10-year. But if you run the 10-year back to what's historical, so it's, it's sub 3%, I think at the moment, but historically it's been around 6%. On average, it's been around 6%, which is about a P15 or 16. So any business that is trading at a higher PE than 15 or 16 has to be growing at a, has to be growing fast and have a higher return than the, the 10 year. That's the way I think about it anyway, but that's value as a philosophy. Yeah, it's a little bit different to what I do, but I understand what you're saying. 
that's what I think is interesting in the market is because of the indexes, market commentators often talk about value and growth as those indexes, but really value, everything's value. You know, you've got to, you, why would you overpay for something? So it, it can be as can be as wide as you want. And, you know, at certain stages, the growth stocks are value investments as well when they come back enough. So, yeah. The way that I think right. about it is, is to slightly reverse the process. And I say, if something, if something has a rate of growth that is high and the current fundamentals of the business are low relative to what you're paying for it, you're implicitly or you're implying that you expect the rate of growth to be very high, for it to, which, which may not be a bad bet. Mm-hmm. It, that might be the right thing to do. That might be perfectly sensible in, in, in any given case. It's just that that's the explicit bet or the implicit bet that you're making. And when you're doing that, that's a growth investment because you, you require this business to grow materially to justify the price that you're paying. Whereas there are other businesses, so I own HBQ, which is Hewitt Packard. That's the, the printer business. There are two HPs for people who don't know this, HPE and HPQ. And HPE is the enterprise. That's all the sexy consulting. That's the better business. And HPQ is they make printers. They're the ones who are responsible for your printer that doesn't print. And everybody's got like a $200 printer that sits in there that they use every now and again that doesn't work very well. So why would you buy that business? Well, they've been, they don't have a lot of competition. They generate a lot of cash flow and management's been very good at buying back undervalued stock and the stock's done pretty well as a result. That would be a more traditional value investment where mm-hmm. there's no growth. Really, it's, if anything, it's shrinking, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. If it's undervalued and they buy back stock, you can still do quite well. And I regard that as being a deep value investment where I know that the business isn't that great, but on a risk-adjusted basis, risk to re- reward is pretty good. And in other things where, yeah, it's a stellar business, but it's so expensive that it's risky as an investor to take a position because you are requiring growth from it to justify the price. And that can be just a difficult thing. Ideally, you get things that are stellar businesses that aren't very expensive. And that's, that's the holy grail, right? That's, that's the what holy we're looking yeah. for all the time. Exactly. We're trying yeah. to triangulate towards that but you know you've got to take your opportunities when you get them they're not always there and so you're always you're always looking for the ideal and then picking the bits of hair off the <laughs> thing that you have to see if you can sort of justify where you're buying it that's what i think yeah no i agree and, and it, the the stellar ones only come about every couple of years i find like for us a few years ago it was oil stocks right the oil market was the oil price was at 30 bucks a barrel and the, and the oil industry was going to crash and end because all the all the tanks were full and the Tankers were off the coast of China and couldn't unload and all the rest. And so no one was buying all stocks, but it was the best time to buy all stocks. So yeah, they're the stellar returns. Yeah, negative negative oil was a pretty good was a pretty good indicator that it was time to get some energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me just ask you some questions about the US environment. I mean, if someone's interested in investing over there and or buying into your fund, for example, what do they watch out for from a sort of compliance framework point of view like for example in australia you you know if you were going to buy into a fund you'd check to see if it was licensed so it had an afsl is there a similar sort of regime in the us that we need to look at yeah so i have to have a license i've had to pass this they call them the series the series 65 series 7 a variety of these sort of things in order to operate an ria the ria must be license in order to have a public company, uh, sorry, in order to have a public fund. A public fund is it's not quite as complicated as having a public company. I don't have a, an internal 
company secretary and those things, but the back end of that, I share one with, Mm -hmm. I sit on a a trust and the trust has 14 or 15 funds on it and the the back office operation for that is run from Milwaukee because it's a lower cost state and they they do all of the the bits and pieces that go into the back end and that's it's high touch there's a lot of work that needs to be done there so you wouldn't be able to have a an ETF without being licensed and without there's an enormous amount of publishing of updates and so on that go to the SEC i would recommend that you look at the SEC filings to make sure that the company is proper okay. the, the fund is properly right. constituted then mm-hmm. you can check to see the the manager has the appropriate license and usually that's it's a CRD number or if you googled acquirers funds llc that all of the filings would come up at the SEC and also with finra which is the the body that governs enterprises like mine that governs the managers like mine so we have reporting obligations at all of these different levels and it's also state based to make it even more complicated so there's a california there's a California version as well. So there's three governing bodies that, that I have to deal with. And what about for the podcast? Like I went out and got my car for an AFSL because the ASIC here was cracking down on people giving financial advice in, in sort of new media. What, what about for your podcast? I don't mention the tickers of the funds on, and I don't discuss any ETFs about things that we've seen in the market. And a lot of it tends to be about personalities. So Julian Robertson, who was the Tiger, the Tiger founder passed away today. So we mentioned Julian Robertson's passed away. Like That's the sort of stuff that we're interested in rather than promoting the tickers, which I would never do. I, I can't do that on my own podcast without going through compliance. So anytime that we want to mention a ticker or discuss anything like that, it would need to go through compliance first before it's, before it's released. It's, it's considered a big no-no to if you do it, you're making, a, you're making a release without having it approved first. So it's, it's approved by a compliance group who have a relationship with FINRA and they submit things to FINRA before they're released publicly. So you need to be very careful. You, you could do it yourself, but it'd be fatal. The number of changes, anytime that I actually make a release, it, it all gets redlined and it's cost me a few thousand dollars every time I do it to, for, the, for the advice. So I'm reticent to do it. Sorry, the compliance group is that a a, a company that you? Oh no, sorry, that's to? my. I, I call it, I call it my compliance group, but they're, they're actually called. It's for I use Foresight Quasar, just the name of the enterprise that that looks after it. Okay, and this is just because you have a fund. You need to be careful. If you didn't have the fund, would you talk about stuff like that on your podcast? Yeah, the because I am licensed, and because I have. The way that the regime is structured over here, it's, it's structured around the tickers. So anytime you're mentioning a ticker or the name of the fund, then that has to be signed off by compliance. But aside from that, you're, you're, you're okay, provided you're not giving financial advice. So that's why you often see that everybody has the disclaimer that this is not financial advice. Mm. Yeah. And if you have the disclaimer, that's it. You're, you're, you're free, free and clear if you just use the disclaimer. If you made the disclaimer and then you went on and pitched your tickers, you'd be in you'd be in trouble. They would look at the the substance of what you're saying. So there are lots of things. So if you have a managed, there are many investors who structure their businesses as they manage accounts rather than uh, a fund, the way I do. Right. And if you manage an account, then you can talk about whatever you want and you can pitch yourself as much as you want. It's just the moment that you structure your the moment it's a product, which is like a 
of the yeah. ticker you've gone. You talking about your ticker, or are you talking about like just as we did before? You spoke about McDonald's. Can you talk about McDonald's openly? On I your can. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I can't promote my own ticker. Gotcha. Before we wrap up, Tobias, just uh, you know, I, I know a lot of the folks that listen to our podcasts are uh, you know learning to be value investors and trying to get in the mind space of a value investor, and they're trying to think long term. It's been an interesting couple of years to be in a value investor. Like, uh, you know, in 2020, when we had you on, at least in Australia, it was very much all the growth stocks that were still sexy and BMPL players and all that kind of stuff and crypto. (laughs) And we spent a lot of our time saying, yeah, ignore all of that, ignore all of that, ignore all of that. Let's just focus on fundamentals. And we're looking for businesses that produce a lot of cash and are undervalued, et cetera, et cetera. And we were doing okay. Our, our portfolios were doing okay back then. And you know they weren't doing okay if you compared them to the high end of the tech stocks. They weren't growing at 100% a year, but we were getting our 20% a year. It was okay. The last year, it's been pretty rough with uh, a lot of the stocks that we were invested in here, mining, et cetera, with the China slowdown and all that kind of stuff and Ukraine and, and bloody, bloody, blah. It's taken a beating. As a, as a long-term value investor, can you give our audience some, some hints or insights into how do, how do you stay centred? How do you stay disciplined? How do you stick to your circle of competence despite all of the noise that's going on around you about this sector or that sector? I talk about this a little bit on my website acquirersfunds.com just there's not there's not much content on it's just the first I put it just the first page this is something I'll talk about a little bit just that and I think this is what Buffett has said too really that there are to succeed in the market you really don't have to hit home runs you just have to make sure you don't die on the way you know you gotta (laughs) you gotta survive to the end and the longer you survive the more you learn and the more you learn about ways that you can lose money so I have just studied all the ways that people have blown up in the past. And they're all obvious stuff, like don't take on too much debt. Don't buy companies that have got too much debt. Watch out for particular types of business models. There are some business models that get ruined every time they go through a recession. And so you just sort of have to avoid those or, or be very skeptical when you see them. There are also things like style drift is something that is more a problem for fund managers, but I think it's a problem for investors too. This is the thing where what you're doing is not working what those guys over there are doing is working. It's very tempting to start going towards what those guys are doing. But I think the real lesson is that there are these, you know, they, they call it the law of ever-changing cycles or, or mean reversion, which is the idea that what is out of favor does tend to come back into favor. And so you've got to train yourself to go to what is out of favor and hold what is out of favor, knowing that or hoping that, trusting that at some point, it'll come back into favor. So I spend a lot of time avoiding style drift. I achieve that by, I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of research. I have a very defined universe of things that I will consider at any given point in time. Most of them are going to be too expensive. The ones that are offering a reasonable sort of risk reward is where I tend to go, but I don't have any idea. I always have in the back of my mind that the market is probably right and I'm probably wrong. It's, there aren't any free lunches in this market. You've got to be you're paying somewhere else to, to hold these things. And so what I've found is that my strike rate is about 50%. It's about 50-50. But the idea is that 
the ones that hit return a little bit more than the ones that miss because I'm concentrating on the downside first. So when I'm wrong, there's another way that I'm not going to lose money. I've got some balance sheet strength or something else there. And then if I'm right, the market should re-rate because it's expecting the worst. The worst doesn't manifest and you tend to get a re-rating that says. So an example of that right now is Facebook. Everybody's got an opinion on Facebook, the product. And I don't really know. This is one of the things that I always say. I don't know what the future holds for Facebook. But if we just look at the financials of Facebook, it's earning way too much money for where it's trading. And they are doing a very substantial buyback. They're also spending money on the metaverse and doing other things like that. I appreciate that Facebook has a lot of problems and it really does touch the gag reflex for me too. <laughs> I don't like the, the blue site and various other things. But purely quantitatively looking at the financial statements, I do think that it looks too cheap if it, continue to, if it can continue to earn the way it seems to. And so I watch the metrics. Is this business, every time they publish their daily active users and so on, MDAUs, um, monetizable daily active users, that's the sort of stuff that I look at. Is that falling or is it growing? And then I think, you know, Zuck is, Zuck's a scary dude in many ways. He's a, he's a ferocious competitor and I like that. And he's buying back stock. He's got all of his money in it. He's pretty smart. So that's the sort of bet, but that could easily be wrong. So I, if it works out, it might be a 7% position. If it doesn't work out, it might be a 3% position. So I, I kind of think I buy it after it's had its big collapse. You know, I've only bought it recently, but it's one of those things that if somebody makes, I talk to people all the time who know why Facebook is not going to work. And I agree with them. It's just that on the financials, I have to consider something like that. Otherwise, I'll never do anything. I'm surprised by that. I would have thought that Facebook wouldn't be anywhere near a value investor's radar. So that's interesting. It's, it's in the cheapest 10% on an enterprise multiple basis of stocks in my universe. So it's, it's well and truly in my investable universe. And it's wow. got a massive return on capital. Wow. Yeah, interesting. I wanted to unpick a couple of things you said there. So give us the red flags that you look for. So you were saying before you find that there are companies which won't survive a recession. Now, in Australia, for me, that would be aggregators, anybody who mentions addressable market in their first slide, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But what are the red flags for you when you see a, a presentation? Well, I think if you limit your investable universe, to companies that are actually generating money, immediately mm. you've cut out. Mm. You don't have to think about a lot of things. Like that narrows down your universe pretty quickly. But then I also look at things like, so there are companies over here that, that lend money for consumer, you know, like Rent-A-Center or uh, Synchrony Financial, these kind of businesses. Uh, there are lots of those sort of, I'm just missing a few of the tickers in there, but those sort of businesses, they look great when everybody feels good and they're going out and getting new TVs and, and renting their TVs, but they look terrible when they go through recessions because nobody wants to pay for the TV or they give them back. And if they, those companies, they don't hold all of that. They don't like to hold that debt on their balance sheet. They all used to do that. But what they do now is they bundle it up and they sell it off to somebody else. But that secondary market of buying that debt is becoming increasingly smart. And so now a lot of these guys are stuck with this stuff sitting on their balance sheet. That would make me extremely nervous. There's, there's sort of a, I wonder if there's a price that that can get cheap enough where I would consider that there probably is. I don't want to say that there's not, but that would not be like a regular value investment. That would not be something where I would say, oh, it's half price. It's worth having a look at. That would be something where I would say it would have to be in extremis. It would have to be priced as if it was a donut. And now I've got a little bit of option value in it. And that would be something that I might consider. But 
not in the ordinary course. So that's the kind of that's the business model that I'm trying to avoid. That the business model that can fail or go rapidly backwards. And, and banks are financials are often like that. If it's one of those that it's the top of our buy list at the moment over here, <laughs> TGA, isn't it? Thorn Group, they own Radio is, Rentals. Yeah. It's yeah. the old Radio Rentals business, yeah. Their, their score on our checklist each week is, it gets a really high score on our checklist. It's really cheap, I think, and and maybe that's why. <laughs> Could be, yeah. yeah. There's, there's certainly been a lot of fear over here about a coming recession, and so those companies get marked down. I guess it's the same in the States for you. And that presents opportunities as well because the recession may not happen. Right. As I was saying earlier, there's always that balancing act between is this cheap because it's risky or is it cheap because people are just, it's just out of favour. And so it's, I think that that's kind of the distinction that I try to make. That's one of the red flags. So I look at business model, I look at balance sheet, and then I want them to actually be a business. So I don't like science experiments and I don't like and there, there are lots around although having said that you know a science experiment with a lot of cash on the balance sheet I think about it biotechs yeah, right. so biotechs over here there's there's this huge universe of biotechs here and they're all trading net cash but you know they're burning the cash so you you're not really you don't have any expectation of getting the cash back but if you were to take a portfolio of these things and treat them as little options and you're getting them for a discount to cash, good things happen historically when that. I tend to avoid them, but every now and again, when there are a lot of conditions that are right, I might buy a basket. I remember being going to the US just after the dot-com crash, maybe a year or a year later, and being told biotechs are the future. And you know, being in San Francisco and driving past this big, shiny new campus for some biotech company, and I just thought, it hasn't changed. The money's just moved from tech to biotech. It was yeah, amazing. I've noticed the same no thing. One learned. No one learned. It's, it's, not that the, it's not that the mania goes away. It just moves somewhere else. That's right. Yeah, the crap game is like a floating crap game. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw, I've seen it happen. It's been a funny thing over the last few years because it's gone from, it's gone from crypto to that profitless tech and then it was in NFTs. With NFTs. Yeah. To get back to what you were saying before, though, Tobias, in terms of staying focused and disciplined and avoiding style drift, which I like that term, it sounds like you've you've just got conviction that your your thinking, your model for investing is long term, uh, secure, and you just stick to it. Stick to what you know because you believe long term it's going to pay off, even if there are good years and bad years, long-term, you'll end up uh, better off if you just stick to what you know, what you believe. I do think that that's the case, but it's also the case that I can, I can look at the companies that I hold and I can look at what they're earning and I can look at what I've paid for them. And I have a reasonably, I just have a confidence in those companies that I hold. So I, at the moment, the companies that I, the portfolios that I have over earn on their assets relative to the S&P 500 or, or the Russell 2000. So S&P 500 is, is an un, in an unusual place at the moment where I think that it is higher quality than it has been in the past just because it's Google and Microsoft and those Amazon, those companies at the top, rather than Exxon or something like that, which is sort of much more cyclical. In the Russell 2000, the smaller companies, there's really a lot of junk in there that you really paid for being a careful value investor in the junky stuff. It's going to be hard to be the index for a while, I think. But having said that, my portfolio still overruns both of those portfolios and it's trading at half the price of both of those. And when I see that, I think it's just a matter of time 
mean reversion will push those companies closer to the index at least. And I think that I still think they're better than cash. You know, there's enough margin of safety built into them that I think the zig, the average PE across that is like 8.3. And for deep, the average PE across that is seven high, 7.8, something like that. They both earn a, a better than. So the S&P 500 earns 13% on, on its assets. And these all earn about 25, 26% on assets. So my view is that at some point, either they will outgrow that valuation and it doesn't require any change in the multiple or the multiple will revert. And either of those two scenarios mm. should lead to a performance, but it takes time. The last time we spoke, I think you said that you rotated your portfolios on a quarterly basis, perhaps. Are you still doing that or are you buying and holding them for longer? I don't sell. All I'm doing is rebalancing. So what I'm doing is if a company trades up a lot over a quarter, but it's still otherwise undervalued, I would just sell it back to equal weight. And if a company trades down, I would just buy it back to equal weight because I've found that about 20% of the return comes from that rebalancing over time. And then eventually things get too expensive and they get sold out or they, I've made a mistake and they get sold out. And so the turnover registers is about 80%. But it's that's sort of a little bit misleading. I'm not selling that many companies. I'm just right. trimming back or adding to keep it roughly equal weight. And in terms of concentration, how how many stocks are in the portfolios? Thirty in Zig, because that's mid cap, large cap, one hundred in deep, as small and micro. Just because they can be very small, they're not as financially secure, and it's hard to get money into them. Some of them are, are yeah. somewhat illiquid. Do you find the hundred stock portfolio is tracking the index closer than the more concentrated one? No, it's funny. It's because it's a, um, well, they both deviate quite significantly from the index, but it's because the index, you know, that, that those 2,000, uh, there's a lot of junk in there. Just avoiding junk delivers a lot of performance. That's, that's mm. outperformed its index quite substantially. Just, and I think that Buffett says something like, you know, if he was going to improve the index, the first thing you do is just go out and throw out all the junk. <laughs> You know, rather than trying to pick the winners, just try to pick the ones that aren't. Pick out the losers, avoid the losers. And I think that that's a pretty good way of investing for the most part. You just, absolutely. I don't, I don't know whether one thing's going to work or not, but I know that some things are not going to work. <laughs> and so just avoiding those things, I think, helps. That's pretty much the, I, I think that's the basic definition of how QAV works, right, Tony? It's designed yeah. to just sort out the junk and whatever's left is what we invest in, really. <laughs> Yeah, you can buy the barrel of apples or you can go through and pick out the bad ones and the ones that are left are much better to eat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like, like that approach. It's like when you go, like I'm a golfer and you, someone's selling secondhand golf balls at the side of the tee and you can buy, you know, 10 for, for 20 bucks or something. If you just have to grab 10 as a handful, you're going to get some crappy ones in there. But if you can go through and pick out the 10 best ones, it's a really good deal. Yeah, I like that. I think that's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. All right, well, we should let you go, Tobias. Listen, if people are new to uh, the Acquirers Multiple, where's the best place to send them? To the Acquirers Multiple website, acquirersmultiple.com. From there, they can find the books and the podcasts and the funds and all your world of stuff. That's the easiest way to do it, acquirersmultiple.com or uh, Acquirers Funds. There aren't very many links. So Acquirers Multiple is the best place to go. And then I've got the books and the podcast. There's a free screener and some other stuff on that site. And the, the bloke who runs it is an Aussie by the name of Johnny Hopkins. He does a great job. 
of uh, pulling up all of these excellent articles. And so he, he runs the blog on that and it's, he does a fantastic job with it. Good stuff. Well, thanks for coming back on and chatting to us, man. That was good fun as always. My pleasure. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Tony. It was really good. Lovely to hear from you again. And the Queenslander, ex-UQ alumni like myself. Yes, yeah, Roma, Roma in Western Queensland, and then then UQ. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now I grew up in Brisbane, but I think I was there before you. I was there in the early eighties. Yeah, I got to Brisbane in '96, I think '95, okay. something like that. All right. Thanks, mate. Good luck. Take care. Thanks, fellas. That was that was a lot of fun. I appreciate yeah. it. All right. See you. Take it easy. Bye. All right. Oh, well, he's gone. He's We're gone. still here. How was Fiji, Tony? <laughs> Great, really good. Got back last night. Uh, no rain. Incredible. Yeah, people are lovely. Good group of guys on the tour and some girls. So some of them brought their wives. So it was good. Really good fun. Did you win? No, I didn't. I think I finished about seventh in the court. out of how many? Oh, uh, two dozen. Okay, wasn't well, too far off the money. Yeah, you had a good yeah. time. How's your I back? did. Had a, had a great time. I uh, managed my way through it. It was pretty sore, so. One of the reasons I didn't play all that well, but um, yeah, I'm, I got back. It was good. One stage after, after golf, I was lying on bed thinking, shit, I'm not going to be able to move. <laughs> Am I going to go playing back? But uh, I've been working a lot with the physio, gave me lots of stretches and things to do, so it helped. Yeah. Are you doing them? Mm. That's good. Yep. Yeah, it's been great, great, a great break. And now I've got Ruddy coming up tomorrow. Jenny flies out this afternoon for Margaret River and then um, – Roddy's up so that eating and drinking continues. I was speaking to him <laughs> last week and I said, I hear you're going to be partying with him. He goes, oh, I don't know if we're going to be partying, Cameron. He goes, well, he said, we will be drinking to excess, though, if that's what you mean. <laughs> I said, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant, Roddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Lots of drinking to excess. You see anything good? Watch anything good while you're away? I haven't watched a thing, although there was, wasn't much on TV, but I did turn CNN on. So it's just, uh, yeah, more partisan politics from the US. Yeah, good stuff. I'll be literally just playing golf and drinking beer and eating seafood and go to bed and repeat. <laughs> Sounds great. I went with the twins to see uh, Top Gun Maverick. Oh, good. Uh, nah. Nah. No, okay. Nah. No, I mean, look, not bad, but it was getting so much hype. Everyone I Ooh. read was saying, oh, it's the greatest. It's what I'd expect from... Top Gun sequel. Nothing more, Ooh. nothing less, nothing special. Doesn't deserve the hype, but it's, you know, it's okay. If you like a like your Hollywood blockbuster, it's a good by the numbers Hollywood blockbuster. Couple of nice little moments in there, little cameo. I mean, Val Kilmer gets a bit of a gets a scene, which was uh, surprising based, you know, knowing his Ooh. health condition. Ooh. But they they worked that into the thing. The other bit that I liked is Jennifer Connolly is the love interest in it. And the first time you see her, she runs a bar and Tom Cruise is in there. The first time you see her, they play a bit of a Bowie, Bowie songs playing in the background. It's Let's Dance, but, you know, mm. obviously she was in um, Labyrinth with Bowie and I thought that was, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a nod to her relationship with David. But yeah, Jennifer yeah. Connolly? Yeah. Labyrinth? You ever seen Labyrinth? Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you were saying that they had a relationship together. No, no, but she was no. in a, you know. Yeah, right. I, I yeah. think it's probably her most famous uh, role probably was when she really? was a kid. With Labyrinth? I don't know. What's she done that's more famous than Labyrinth? More famous? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, 12 Monkeys? 
think she was in that, wasn't she? I don't remember. <laughs> was she? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> I was in love with her when I was 16 and she was in uh, yeah. Labyrinth, man, so that's why yeah, I remember. Okay. Jenny and I watched the Elvis movie before I went away. Oh, yeah. What did you think? Too long. First half good, second half bad. So it just went on far too long. And it's it's focused on Tom Hanks playing Tom Parker, so yeah, which is what I guess they had to do to get a star in the movie because the guy who plays Elvis is a young actor. But, yeah, the first half was really good. You know, mm. the young actor did a great job, lots of good black music in it. Yeah, so that was all good. And then mm. dragged on in the second half, the sort of Vegas years where it was really about Colonel Tom Parker continuously tricking Elvis into only playing at uh, one of the mob's casinos year after year after year just to clear his gambling decks, basically. Oh, really? Tom wow. Parker's gambling debts. Yeah, interesting. His his relationship with Elvis and the whole dynamic there I always found fascinating. Yeah, so it's worth watching, but it's very long. I finished The Sun Also Rises and mm-hmm. loved that and immediately started reading The Mo- uh, Movable Feast, you know, five or six chapters into that, really enjoying that as well. Really yeah, isn't it? Yeah. enjoying Hemingway's style in these books, this iceberg uh, style that he's got. It's very, it's almost childlike in the writing. It's very, eh, you know, he did this and then he did that and this was there mm. and this was over here and it's, mm. uh, it's really interesting. Short sentences. He used to try and take things out of sentences, yeah. Short sentences and written very simply, the sentences. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, enjoying that. And uh, we finished The Old Man and we finished the Under the Banner of the Heaven series and uh, we started watching Severance. You heard anything about Severance? Yeah, I've seen it hyped. It was on uh, one of those night shows, clip of it. Hmm, it's up for a bunch of Emmy noms. We're a couple of episodes into yeah. that. That's pretty interesting. I haven't watched it though. Yeah, Tuturo's in it. Christopher Walken's in it. You know, they always do a great job. They make everything worth watching. Of course, we finished The Better Call Saul last week too, the finale yeah. of Better Call Saul, which uh, was really good. Did you say really... there was there was something in the finale? Of, was it? Did you say Buffett was in the finale or Berkshire Hathaway or something? There's a mention of it. There's, you know, they've got some flashbacks and there's one of Saul and, and Mike when they're out in the desert and Saul says, if you had a time machine, you know, what would you do? And Mike has this deep, thought about when he'd go back and you know when he when he, he first said he'd go back to when his son was killed but then he changed it goes no I'd go back to 1984 which is when he took his first bribe and he was thinking deeply about how what he would do about his life and he says to Saul what would you do and Saul goes I'd go back to 1964 August 31st or something he goes what happened then he's thinking there was some deep yeah, personal yeah. meaning thing right. and he goes that's when Warren Buffett uh, floated, <laughs> you know, took over Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. If you know, if I uh, if I go back mm. and bought, uh, you know, hundred shares of Berkshire Hathaway in 1964, you know, <laughs> I'd be this rich today. And mm. Mike's like, it's all about the money for you, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and that's the the last episode is just about thinking about where things went wrong and and how you could fix it if you could go back right. and if okay. and if you can't go back uh how do you fix it today kind of stuff it was good it was really really i thought perfectly executed uh series finale so yeah big cheers to those folks but yeah it was, it was <laughs> i had to have a laugh they get 
Get some Warren Buffett. And I know, I know Buffett was a big fan of Breaking Bad. I think he did a turned up to set on, on Breaking Bad at one point, got a tour of the set. He was a big fan of the show. Oh, so wow. okay. I, I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with why they <laughs> gave him a nod in the season, the series finale of, yeah. <laughs> of Better Call Saul. I'm sure that would have. Yeah, right. I'm sure that would have uh, made his day. Good. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that and uh, definitely check out his books and uh, podcasts. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we'll be back with a normal show next week, TK. Yeah. Looking yep. forward to it. If, you, if you're if you sober. Yeah. Well, I think Ruddy leaves on Tuesday afternoon, so we'll be fine. If your liver survives the next yeah. week, we'll do, a, we'll do another show. All right. Cheers, fine. mate. Thank All you. Right. Have a good week. QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129 Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. 